0: Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially, one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job is your host, will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. What if I told you the mindset that you need in order to practice and prepare is completely different than the mindset that you need in order to achieve at an optimal level when you're performing? In today's conversation with Brian Levinson, we talk about exactly that. The mental shifts that we need to make in order to thrive in preparation and in performance. I think that all of us can benefit by understanding the subtle shifts we need to make to optimize in all situations. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Brian, welcome to the pursuit of learning podcast. Where I always like to start with our guests is to understand what is motivating you right now in your life.
1: Yeah. When I think about now, I think about like the minute, but I think you want more of a macro answer. So I would separate it personally and professionally. So professionally, you know, I work as mainly an executive coach and highly motivated to help my clients. see new possibilities of what they're capable of and ultimately enjoy success. So as a coach, I don't think I carry the water uh, for my clients. I think they carry the water and joy is a big piece for me. So I think a lot of people have goals and aspirations, but for me, success without joy isn't true success. So I try to also focus on joy uh, and then everyone defines success differently. And then personally, you know, I just want to feel alive as often as I possibly can. Like I just want to experience life, engage with it, play with it, you know, and sometimes that involves exercising or last night I played basketball and pushing myself. And other times it involves chilling with my kids and and relaxing and watching a movie or watching a game. And so it varies, but I'm highly motivated to just feel alive with the people I'm closest with and continue to build strong relationships. I think like I'm a relationship driven human. And so- the better my relationships, I think the better my life is. So I'm highly motivated to continue to build strong relationships.
0: Oh, that's a beautiful answer. I love the success with joy. Don't carry the water, mixing the family with the exercise. There are so many great nuggets in that in and of itself. The, what I also want to know before we dive into your book is what do you want to make sure that the listeners take out of that today?
1: Yeah, I mean the book, it's interesting. I kind of described the book as if I never was in a band. I was never musically inclined, but I always wondered when you went to a concert of your favorite band why they wouldn't play their hits. And I kind of get it now. You know, the book is is 2 years old and so you talk about it, you talk about it, you talk about it and you evolve. And you know the book is 2 years old, but I spent four formal years working on the book, and then a whole bunch of years before that, before I knew I was going to write it, working on the content. So I would say what I want them to know is it doesn't have to resonate with you, and that's okay. There are going to be elements of the book that maybe you disagree with. That's okay. I don't think it's a Bible. I think it's where I would say I was having worked mainly with athletes and my background's in sports psychology before You know, shifting to probably more corporate. I still do some work in sports and work with some sports teams and athletes, but you know, the book was from 10 years of sort of being in the trenches with elite athletes and teams. And so it came from a sport perspective and a sport lens, but I wanted to write it uh, for a broader audience. So I think it's important that people read it and, and really identify sort of how they think about their own preparation and their own performance. And I guess I would say, I think the framework, if they take away a framework and an understanding that they don't have to be one way all the time. And it depends when they need to reach into certain parts of themselves in different situations and the power of being agile and understanding when I need to be one way and when when I need to be another way. So if nothing else, if if you don't read the book, if you just listen to my conversation with Clint today, I hope you take this concept of shifting your mind and understanding that sometimes you need to be some way and you might be in a completely different environment and you need to show up in a completely different way. So authenticity, you know, it's flexible, it's not rigid. It's we have different sides to ourselves. And so that's really the core premise of the book.
0: Yeah, that really jumped out at me. It didn't seem to me like we were looking at each of these mindset shifts and and there's pairs that we're going to be talking about it didn't seem like we were looking at them and saying it was binary. It was mutually exclusive. It was, uh, I started framing them and, and you'll hear when I ask questions about them as a continuum. And it's for this given situation, how do I get over to this side of the continuum? How do I get here? How do I, if I really focus in most of my life on humility, how do I make sure that when I get on the ice, that I have arrogance? And we're going to dive deep into why we want arrogance when we're, when we're on the sport court. But that continuum aspect was a wonderful way to look at it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you use the word binary, because when we first started out, we actually called them binaries, and we didn't feel like that did those shifts uh, justice. And you hit the nail on the head, and I think some people see the word arrogant and get triggered right away. And it's like, arrogant It's good, and they get off kilter. And I understand why that is. If you've ever worked for an arrogant boss or a jerk or someone who's arrogant all the time, they're not people that we often want to associate with or be around. And what I tried to really make clear in the book is the power of when and when we need to step into another side to ourselves. And a lot of us are afraid to do that for fear of judgment or embarrassment or shame. There's a lot we can lose when we step into these different sides to ourselves. So I think it's easier, it's safer often to just stay in, in one side of ourselves and just say that's who I am. And for me and the clients I work with, we're trying to help them grow and, and learn and develop. And I find that that growth and development often comes from tapping into different sides of them and understanding when they need to use those different sides. So yeah, that's really the premise of it. So I love that you read it and you understood that. I think some people don't. And so uh it's hard for me to explain it. I also think once... Like I was obsessed with this material for a long time. And I find anytime you get Really into the weeds on certain material. It actually becomes harder and harder to teach it. It actually becomes a, it, like when we're a novice, it's way easier to teach things because we are just learning it. When we start to really understand something, it actually becomes way, way more difficult. So for me, if you add, you know, the four years of working on it, the two years it's been out. So it's been like a six year journey with this concept. And I think when I first would explain it to people, they understood it better than they do today when I explain it. So it's helpful to have someone like you with fresh eyes share your perspective. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, no worries. I love it. Let's get into it. And so you talked about that. You were working on the book for years, but also it came out of just the work you did for all the time leading up to it before you even thought of reading a book, because most of it comes from working with your clients. And what I read in there, and correct if I'm wrong on this, was that over time you had three foundations that formed the foundations for the book. One was what we think and when. And that dictates how far we can go, what we're capable of, and when it's time to deliver. Uh, The second was the preparation mind and the performance mind are not just different, they're often opposites. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways we'll be able to share with people and have the conversation as we work through each one. And we need to practice the performance mind in order to leverage it when the time comes. Do you want to unpack those three wonders for people? Yeah, let's start with the first
1: one. I mentioned earlier the power of when, and um, like just as a framework or as a thesis... If you can understand that, if I can understand that that concept of when, and I almost called the book when, and then Dan Pink, who I actually know and great guy, came out with a book called When, but his when was all about the time of day. Like, when do you need to do this? And when do you need to do that? For me, when is about, hey, when do I need to show up this way and and when... Do I need to show up that way? So if you can just start with that idea that I might need to be a different way in different environments, and different situations, and different circumstances. For example, if I was interviewing you, Clint, on my podcast, I would need to show up in a very different way than when you're interviewing me. And I actually had a debate with a friend of mine about this, but I really do think that's true. Like You're having me on right now to learn about how I think, what I think, my book. I'm comfortable sharing that, but me sharing that in the way in which I do that is very different than if I were asking you questions and what would be needed to learn. And so let's just take learning and executing. And we'll get more into this when we think about preparation and performance. But preparation is all about learning. It's all about growing. It's all about getting better and improving. Performance is about execution. And most of the time, like I need to execute. So if you can understand that and that leads to the second one, which is they're these minds, the preparation mind, the performance mind. They're not just different. They're often opposite. It's counterintuitive because if I spend so much time in my preparation mind, learning, 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 I've gotten reps. I've, you know, I've done that so many times that then when it's time to perform and I love Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset and fixed mindset, and I would challenge it a bit. Like I think. When it's time to to learn material for school, for example, I need to have a growth mindset. I need to learn more. I need to think like my intelligence can grow and it's not set. But when I'm actually taking the test, I would argue having a fixed mindset is helpful. And I don't even have this in the book, by the way. But I really believe like affirming myself. No, I've put in the work. I've learned all the material. I am smart. I am a great test taker. Those are massively important when I'm actually trying to execute something. And so from my perspective, what we often do is we overemphasize this preparation mind because we do need to spend a lot more time in it. And we underemphasize what's necessary when you're actually executing. And we also don't practice the performance mind, which leads to the last point, which is if we think about practice and sports gets a lot of stuff wrong, but they actually get this right, they often will practice both of these. So they understand there's a time to learn and grow and develop. It could be watching film. It could be slowing down and going through a play and walking through it. It's trying to really learn what they're trying to do, and then they'll go live, where they'll put a minute on the clock and say, "All right, it's the last minute of the game. We got to get a bucket." And or in ice hockey, like I know you're Canadian, so we we'll use hockey as an example. And I love hockey. You know, all right, let's go and and play a, a full game or. Let's play in soccer. They'll play small-sided games where they'll play like three-on-three. Like You need reps in the execution. And I think many of us don't practice that way. And so from my lens, one of the things, and I've talked to a lot of sports coaches about this, and it's changed a lot how they operate their practices. If we're overemphasizing the preparation mind or the performance mind in practice, we might be underutilizing the other. So a great practice involves reps in both. And we need to be intentional about making sure we spend time in that performance mind where we're executing, and there is something on the line, and there are consequences, and there's judgment, and there's evaluation. And then we need time to give people psychological safety to go and learn and grow and and develop. And we need that in in the preparation mind. So we really need both. And I find that we tend to overemphasize one of these. And generally speaking, people tend to overemphasize or overindex on the preparation mind more than the performance mind.
0: And so as a hockey coach for 11-year-olds, so you hit the nail on the head, The I'm looking at practice and I'm saying, hey, we're going to spend a a lot of it learning basic skating skills. We're going to do some breakouts, some break-ins. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go down into the offensive zone and we're going to play a little three-on-two. And you're going to practice what we just worked on. In a live situation, that's taking most of the practice. We're really reinforcing that, that learning and growing. And then we're reinforcing it through performance in a live situation.
1: Yeah. No, by the way, hockey, soccer, lacrosse, these are fast sports and they're not going to have coach Clint being able to break it down and slow them down when they're on the ice. You can bark whatever you want from the bench. The odds are they're going to have to go make a play. And, you know, you can be barking, whatever you, they're going to have to go figure it out. And so you want them to have reps figuring it out and executing and feeling what it's like to screw up when they missed a guy wide open or they missed an empty net or whatever it is and learning from that after, right? So now let's come back. Let's get back in the preparation mind. Let's break down what happened there. And so it's a start stop of both of these, but you're right. They need to get reps performing without you. They need to get reps performing and getting a feel for the game. Like people talk about instincts and intuition. You know, I'm in Washington, D.C., so I'm a Caps fan. And you watch someone like Alex Ovechkin, who everyone has watched if you're a hockey fan. And it's amazing to watch his capacity. But like one of the people I've always liked, loved watching is his center, Nikki Backstrom, and his instincts and his intuition for where guys are and how to set them up. Like, that comes from. Getting reps in your performance mind and from your preparation mind, whether it's watching film or working on little skills and and developing these moves and whatever you need to do. And so those are the parts that we see in sports, but you could take it to the business world. Think about sales. Like a lot of sales is preparation. Who am I talking to? What do they value? What do they care about? How do I serve them? How do I make? How do I have a product that actually can help them? Uh, Like that's what sales is all about, understanding your client and having an offering that is actually something that will add value to them in some way. And we also need reps performing. And we know that. Like if you've ever worked in sales, you know like, oh, I get better at this because I perform. Like my first sales job was cold calling. And I just got reps of executing over and over and over again. And to this day, those reps really helped me because I was in my performance mind. I was just trying to sell tickets and I was executing. I was talking to a stranger on the phone. I was getting hung up on and I was dealing with that emotionally, mentally, and we need both. And so it applies beyond sports. Uh, I don't think it applies to everything. There's probably some industries and there's some shifts that it doesn't apply to. But as a framework, I think it's pretty sound.
0: I mean, when you think about it, because you you bring me right back to a conversation I was having with a colleague yesterday. He was asking me how I balance my life with the podcast family, other things I do on the side while being a CFO. And I've been in the same company now for nine years. Most of my team has been there nine or 10 years. And I said, well, take, for example, the cash flow. I look at that 10 months a year. The person who, so I've looked at it 80 to 90 times. The person who prepares it has done it 50 to 60. The person that reviews it after them has done it 100. The person after them has done it 90. Like by now, it should take me about five minutes to review. When I first started this job, that was a full day or two of work. And so the more reps you put into anything, the better you're going to get at it.
1: Yeah. Another shift that once again is not in the book, but I, so we had nine, that we ended up focusing on, I had a list of probably 35. It was definitely in the thirties. And when I say I, I mean, it came from my clients. Like I would ask them, Hey, where do you need to be when you're preparing? When you, where do you need to be performing? And we'd literally make a list, which is where the book came from. It wasn't even just me. It was, I would ask a golfer, I'd ask, ask a basketball player. Then I'd work with a CFO and then I'd work with all these different people. And I'd ask them, hey, where do you need to be? And I would learn that there'd be different shifts. So one of the ones that's not in the book that I I feel pretty strongly about is I think we tend to make decisions from our head, our heart, or our gut. I think we tend to start from one of those places. And so for people that might lean more in you know, a CFO, I would imagine your analysis, your ability to be in your head, to look at numbers, and to make decisions based on data is probably pretty strong. And I would guess you often probably start there when it comes to a decision. The challenge is to get you also to think about, well, how does this impact people? And how can I connect with people? And that's the heart. And that's more of a, it's a different muscle than your head. And we need that when we're making a decision too. And then we also need our gut. Like, what's my instinct here? What do I feel would be the right thing for us? Which we also need, if it doesn't feel right, intuition's really, really important. And I'll bring that back to the context of the book. I think the head is so critical for preparation. So, so critical. Like, I need the data. Like, give me the analytics. Tell me where I need to be. Give me all the information I need. And then when it's time to actually execute, I think we need our gut. We need our body. And that's where you see elite performers, whether it's a musician or a stand up comedian, um, or an actor, uh, whoever you want to think of when you think of a performer. Like they're not in their head. And if they say they're in their head, they'll say that's what leads to choking. That's what leads to them having paralysis, you know, by analysis. And so we need our body when we're executing because we've done all the work in our head. And then the other piece that I probably don't hit on as much as I would have liked in the book is many of us work in teams and the team is all about heart. It's all about connection. And so we often forget that piece to the puzzle as well. And so the heart I don't think it fits neatly into the preparation or performance but I think it does in practice like if you're going to spend that much time with each other you need to learn how to make each other better you need to connect and it's a combination often of our ability to analyze a room and and see things and also what we feel our energy or our intuition that might live in the in the gut or sometimes in the heart. I know I'm getting a little woo-woo-y, but like that head, gut, heart thing for me as I've evolved helps me understand people better and helps me understand myself better. And I actually think it helps me understand this framework even better as well.
0: Well, I don't think you're getting too woo-woo on that one. And and I think you covered a fair amount of that and, and we'll talk through it in our conversation because you have the idea of our instinct versus the analytical side, and then work versus play. And when I was reading that work versus play section, Brian, I actually took a photo of one of the pages about the benefits of joy at work and having that culture of play. Because largely on my team, we have about 30 of us, and we have that culture. And so I just sent that message to I took a photo of half of the bottom of one page, top of the other page, and sent it to my the managers on my team and said, hey, guys, thanks for creating a, a culture where we have this. You guys do a great job of making sure it's not just work. It's a place where we, we like to be, we enjoy each other, we have joy, and we get shit done. And when you combine those two, it's huge.
1: Hey, Clint, two things on that. I'm going to put my podcast hat on for a second in the interview. Yeah, go. You said something that caught my attention. You said, "Thank you for creating that." Why are you giving them credit? I think a lot of people would think about, you know, leadership has created a culture, and you're you're thinking them for creating it. Can you go into a, a little more detail about that?
0: Yeah. So, and this is part of how I think you create these cultures, and what I've taught all of them while they've been with me. Some of them have been with me now ten years across multiple companies nine, eight, seven years. And I always think of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. And he has a concept called the window in the mirror. And the idea is whenever anything goes well, you look through the window and you attribute it all to your team and to your leaders and, and say, thank you for what you're doing. And when things go wrong, the window fogs over and it becomes a mirror and you take the blame. And so what I've always done with my team and, and I recognize I have to have had a part in, in that because you, you have tone from the top and, and a couple of colleagues emailed me and said, Hey, you know, we have this because you're a big part of it. You drive that. And so I appreciate that, but I can't do it alone. And so I've always lived that window in the mirror and try to do it as publicly as possible. So when the things do go wrong and it's the mirror, Brian. I send the email to my boss saying, "Hey, sorry for that screw up. It's on me." I may CC the people on my team that were involved so they see like, "Oh shit, he's taking the blame for what went wrong." And then when we meet, they're like, "Hey, you know, that was my bad. Thanks for thanks for not, you know, tossing me under the wheels, and let's fix it together." And so that it, you know, it's just it's fundamental to who I am and and how I teach these young people how to lead.
1: I'm going to go back to my second question in a minute, but you just hit on like the power of relationships, which I mentioned earlier when you asked me, like, what do you care? What are you most motivated by? So I've started to really try to study relationships. I think they're like everything. <laughs> I think they're like highly underrated. And you know, you ask people when they're dying, like what's most important? It's the quality of their relationships. And I think we sometimes over value the weather or where we live or what our house is or how much money we're making and those things are all nice i'm not suggesting that you should live a life without pleasure i certainly live a life with plenty of pleasure but i think of like the book into the wild or if you saw the movie into the wild where at the end the main character says happiness is only real when shared and i think like true happiness is different than pleasure like pleasure i can get i can eat a steak in a closet in darkness and get pleasure from eating the steak I don't think that's happiness. Right. And then I can go eat, go, I happen to like vegetables at this stage of my life, but I could go eat broccoli, you know, with great company, and I think get tons of happiness. And so, but you're hitting on this piece of relationships just with that email alone, the example you gave, where you CC your team, what are you doing there? A, you're communicating. You're letting them know, hey, this was my bad. And you should see this and you should know that they're not, my boss isn't thinking that this is your fault. You're communicating up, you're communicating down. It's brilliant. But you're also building trust and respect. You're building respect from your team, letting them know you've got their back and you're building trust. Hey, like you can trust me. I'm not going to put you in a situation to make you look bad. My job as a leader is to get you what you want and to make you look as, as great as I possibly can. Like that to me, it hits on communication, trust and respect. I think are just pillars of great relationships. And then my question for you is beyond that, the communication, the trust, the respect, you've had a part in the fun and the work, the play and the work. You sort of admitted that with me. How have you and your team cultivated that? Like what have you done to build a team that puts the work in, but also remembers to play and enjoy and have fun? Like, what have you cultivated? Is there anything you could put your finger on and say, yeah, we're really good at doing that?
0: Yeah, 100%. So so what it comes down to is, and you know this from all your work, it's that one hire at a time. So each person that we've brought into the team has, in over that 10-year period that I've been there, it's largely we've rebuilt the team. And each person had similar aspects to them. And interestingly, one of the easiest ways that we seem to have that culture of fun and play comes down to food. And so a lot of the people on the team will regularly have lunch together, order in, always have food up at the high top table. It's an open office environment. So people are going up and snacking. But what we look for when we hire and what, what, what I've always pushed them for is we want to hire the bright people who have a good work ethic and they think critically and we'll train them for whatever the role is. If they ever outgrow us, we'll help them find a great job somewhere else. And. When they come in and you start, because we've also, we became a a training office, so we train people to get their accounting designation. So we can have young students who join us straight out of university, and you're seeing them on the team buy their first home, get married, have a child. And you're like, holy crow, I've seen this person grow from right out of university to be a mom or a dad with a house and and, and a partner. And so it's just, it's that Constant teaching environment with people who were already a a lot of them came out of big four accounting firms. So you're already coming out of an environment where you've got the get shit done mindset down. Like that's nailed. And part of the reason you're leaving, Brian, is you're leaving because it's not fun. And so what we say to them, what I've, and now that you're saying, I hadn't even realized I, I, this has been my mantra for nine years. I've said, hey, there's enough of us here now that we're like a big four firm. We're just fun. And that's always been the shift because you're inviting them in to say, hey, if you want to have fun in the workplace and still get things done because you've been doing it for a decade over at Deloitte or KPMG, or those are the two main ones that we have, come do it here. Bring that mindset, but bring it to a place where you can also have joy in the workplace.
1: All right, so you you painted a picture with the high stools and lunch and all that. You're in Canada, like... I know the pandemic's been harsh in the US, but all of the people I know up north have said things up here have been more on lockdown, more strict.
0: So how did we do it?
1: Yeah. How did you do it? What are you doing now? It looks like you're recording this. I don't think you're recording it from the office.
0: No, no. But I'll go in, I'll go in after because we're. I'm six. Uh, we started at six fifteen AM, so I'll go in after.
1: Yeah. So like what did you do during the pandemic? Are you back full in the office? Are people working remote? Like these are the questions my clients are wrestling with every day. And I don't necessarily have an answer to it, but it sounds like a lot of the fun was based on human interaction and grabbing lunch and being together and you know, spending time together. So what was it like the last few years and then what's it like now? Oh
0: yeah. I mean the last few years were hard. And I think one of the first things, so when you get right down to that person element for our team, there's a lot of openness. There's a lot of trust and there's no, there's no, how would I describe? There's no levels. There's no, you can't say this to me because I'm the CFO. It's if you have an issue, come talk to me and, and, I'll deal with it. So the people know, and, and to your point earlier, it comes from knowing that, hey, he's never tossed any of us under the bus. We can trust them. When they bring sensitive issues, I deal with them for them. And that's created in them that same desire to do it for the people that report to them. So and part of that is very early in, very early in the pandemic, when we're working from home, I heard a great line in a podcast, which was, Isolation equals amplification. And so I started talking about mental health challenges with people and saying, hey, here's what I've gone through in my life. Here's what I'm feeling right now. Here's the challenges I'm having. Yeah, you know, I tried to come out to my office and I had a bit of a panic attack. So I messaged our person and said, Hey, I, I need to skip this meeting. And, you know, if any of you are going through that, let's talk. Right. And so starting each one of the things a lot of people did was they started moving to when we have our meetings on this Zoom app that we, we can't really interact like we did, let's start with a check-in. And the check-in isn't, I mean, you nailed it earlier. The check-in isn't analytical. The check-in isn't instinctual. The check-in is what's happening for you in your life right now. What are the challenges you're facing? What's going well? What do you need help with? And so it was all hard. And we did that for, you know, on and off for the last two years. And a lot of people in the room had been there for a long time and had that relationship. And I think we opened up with each other. When I first started talking about my mental health challenges, colleagues started reaching out and saying, hey, here's, you know, here's some of what I've dealt with. And thanks for creating an environment where where we can talk about this.
1: Yeah, it's safe. And vulnerability, like the research on it, backs up this notion that when leadership Is able to be vulnerable, they're more likely to create a safe environment uh, where other people feel safe and they're willing to take risks and they're willing to share. One thing that I've done, like we have, when I say we, me and my colleague do a lot of Zoom group experiences. So I coach and then I do like experience. We call them experiences because I don't think they're keynotes. We try to interact with people and especially when we're doing them virtually, which we do quite a bit of. And one of the things we realized early in our virtual experiences was to play music before we got started. And it's really interesting. Most of my clients who do meetings on Zoom, they never have thought about playing music before they get started. You know that awkward when it's called for 9 a.m. and you look and you're like, oh, we're still waiting on a few people to arrive. And you know, it's sort of this awkwardness. People start checking their emails or their texts or looking up at the sky. It's like, what do we do? There's multiple people. You can't really have a one-on-one conversation with them. Music, it brings everyone together. It changes the mood. The research on music and what it can do to our mood is pretty remarkable. And it also gives you a buffer. So if you, you, you can start at 902 and. For the first two minutes, people are like dancing and singing along to the music. It can remind them of something. Like I've even seen people put in the chat, like this was my wedding song or this is the song that I walked down to at my aisle or this is my favorite song or this is my song from high school or whatever it is. Music is a amazing enhancer to create a joyous environment. And you know, there's other things I talk about in the book, whether it's gratitude. Or, you know, the colors that you even have in your environment, um, body language, smiling. Uh, there's all these things that we can do to step into a joyous mind. Uh, but I think sometimes we take it for granted and we forget about it, especially in the work environment. And so we can literally prime ourselves to be in a better state just by playing some upbeat music, you know, right before a meeting. And honestly, if you take the first two minutes of your meeting to, Listen to music, your people are gonna, they're gonna be grateful for that. It's it's not like you need those two minutes in the meeting. <laughs> and so yeah, I, a lot of my clients have started to do it, especially in when it's virtual and you need that juice, you need that like connection. Uh, even when we started today, it was kind of awkward, right? Before we started recording, I like got on, I was two minutes late because I couldn't find the link and I was struggling. And I got on here and you're like, all right, like we're ready to roll. Like it's an awkward transition. And it's way different than if you were to enter a conference room. We've been doing that for so long. We know how to do that. We know how to enter a conference room and shake hands and kiss babies and, you know, sort of get settled in. But the Zoom, it's like, you're on. Hey, the lights are on. It's time to perform. And it's awkward because a lot of times we're not actually going to jump right in. There's like this, this awkwardness. So music's been, been a pretty cool primer that I've seen work really well.
0: I'll start to add a little clip in so that when people jump in the room, we've got music going. And it's like, hey, welcome. Hope you like this song. The No, that's a good idea. The So let's see that shift. You went from the shift from the guest to the interview. That was well done. Well played. The good demonstration. So let's get back to, and I realize I may not have actually said the book name out loud yet. So we're talking about shift. Your mind, and people can tell that we've been talking about shifting our mind on a continuum throughout the conversation. And the first continuum that I want to talk to you about is humility and arrogance. And and I really enjoyed this one. There was a lot of takeaways. And the quote I'd love to share and then dive deeper on was I argue that you don't have to choose between arrogance and humility. They are both useful mindsets. When the lights are on, choose arrogance. But when the arena empties, bring back the humility. The key is to learn when and how to shift from one to the other.
1: Yeah. I mean, sports, you can really see this sometimes outwardly, but it doesn't have to be outward arrogance. It can be inner arrogance. And I think that's the piece, once again, that's really important. So what is inner arrogance? It's just this, it's this unshakable belief that you're the right person for the job. It's this unshakable belief Or this revealing to yourself that you have you're capable of even more than maybe what you're thinking of. A lot of times we don't even know we can do things. Like I worked out with my I have a trainer. I worked out with him this morning. Like there were things that I didn't think I could do that I just said, F it, I'm gonna go for it. And I'm trying to just make it happen. And sometimes I am amazed at what I'm capable of doing. Um and so we need this unshakable or exaggerated sense of our abilities or even our importance when we're doing certain things. And a lot of people, including myself, struggle with feeling like an imposter at times. And I think there are a couple of ways to handle that. One is to say, all right, cool. Like, I feel like I'm an imposter. Just acknowledge it. And two, be like, well, I've felt like an imposter before and still gotten some amazing results. And so I'm just going to go for it. And I think a lot of us hold ourselves back because we listen to that imposter, tell us that we're not good enough or we're not capable of it, rather than just saying, well, let's just exaggerate what I'm capable of in this moment. And obviously, I'm not saying you should commit fraud or do something illegal or be a jackass. And in sports, sometimes you can see people flex. You can see people talking to the third person. You, you we, we can watch that. We can observe it. Like I'm a big football fan. It's amazing to watch football players on Sunday because if they don't have that arrogance, they're going to get hit in the mouth and there's going to be consequences to not having that. And I've talked to a number of football players and they, a lot of them will talk about the tunnel and how that tunnel for them, when they go from their cleats hitting concrete to their cleats hitting the grass is a trigger point for them where they'll shift and they'll be like, all right, now like it is, I'm a warrior and you'll hear them use almost military or war terms because they need to have this unshakable belief because I don't know if you've ever been on a football field with pro athletes or even college athletes, but they are big, strong dudes. And it is fast. And you know, you need to have a, a sense of self that is, is really, really high. And then when it's over, that's where you need to go back, break down the film, ask people for advice. How could I get better? How could I improve? That's where we need modesty. That's where we need to have a low estimate of what we're capable of or how important we are. And so that shift to me is like critical for the book. And if arrogant isn't a word you can really get behind, pick a different word that involves unshakable belief in yourself. Whatever that word is that resonates with you, go with it. For me, I mentioned confidence in the book. I didn't think confidence carried it. We talked about narcissism even as a possible word. We talked about cockiness, ego. We landed on arrogance, and I think it's the right word. And if you listen to a lot of elite performers, they'll talk about when they're in the arena, when they're actually executing, having this unshakable belief in themselves. By the way, that they've earned through humble preparation. And that's so, so key. You mentioned earlier, you've earned the right to believe your projections because we've gone through so many iterations of it. No, that's the right thing to do. That's what we're going with. And even for a leader, like there does come a time where a leader needs to step into their arrogance and say, This is the way we're going. This is the path. If it screws up, you come back to humility. Hey, I was wrong. It was not the path. We should have gone in a different path. So toggling those two as a leader can be useful. Not all of the shifts are necessarily leadership shifts. They're more about performance shifts. And you sort of mentioned earlier, you take a picture of it and send it to your team. For a lot of people, executing is a is not a leadership skill. Executing is for people that are in sales, for example, where the sales manager is trying to get the salesperson to execute. So the book isn't a leadership book, but I think a great leader will take clips from the book, pass it on to their team, and then figure out what they need to do as well um, in their leadership style as it relates to the shifts.
0: Yeah, 100%. And you're bringing up so many good thoughts. And even if I relate it for an example to my oldest son, 14 years old. And when I watch him play basketball, I've always thought of it as the fire. The fire's missing. And that fire, I, I was saying to him in the car, I was saying, son, you need to, again, you know, reading the book, I said, son, you need to develop a little more arrogance on the court. And do you feel like you have a little bit of arrogance in you in sport? And I just put together what you were saying, because he said, well, I do in football. And I said, well, well why football? And he said exactly what you said. He said, if I don't, I'm the one who's going to get hurt. So in football, I have that arrogance and I have that self-belief that I'm going to pan, because he's on the offensive line, I'm going to pancake the guy on the other side because otherwise he's going to hit me and I'm not letting anyone hit me. But when he plays basketball, he doesn't have, no one's going to hurt him. And I didn't even realize until you started talking through it and, and I'm putting the book together. When I watch him play basketball, he's still just practicing. He's still just running the route the coach tells him to run. He even says, Well, coach tells me on that play, I have to go to that corner. And I'm like, Son, but you're in that corner and you're like, no one else is doing the play. They're all over playing basketball. Like, so how do you get them when there's no threat of injury, Brian? How do you get a kid to say, Hey, you need to want the ball in your hand. And and if the play's broken up, you just got to play basketball and even like take it even higher level we've all had an nba team in our city where you look at you look at the vince carter you look at the kobe they're like 30 seconds left in the game they're like give me the ball i'm going to finish the game for us in your star in your city's like 30 seconds left like let's let the third guy have it i don't want the ball in my hand with 30 seconds left how do you develop that i want the ball with 30 seconds left in the game.
1: Yeah. Some would call it a killer instinct or whatever you want to call it. 100%. So first of all, let's go to your son. I would ask him, hey, what would it look like for you to bring your football mind to your basketball game? What would that look like? Let's actually come up with some qualities. Do you think you'd be better? you think you'd be worse? I had this happen. I was working with a high school basketball team in 2010, so a long time ago. And there was a point guard who was also the star in... The high school play. And I was talking to him, and I didn't even realize I didn't even have this concept available yet. I didn't even think about shift your mind and these frameworks and these shifts. But I was asking him, Hey, can you walk me through like how you prepare before you go on stage? He said, Well, I get there an hour early. I do some stretching. Then I do some meditation. Then I get into costume and I transform and I get my makeup on. Then we come together as a team and we might do like a prayer or some silence. Then we do like a cheer together. And then before I go on stage, I like take a breath and I really transform into this character. I said, okay, now walk me through your routine for basketball. And he didn't really have one. And he didn't realize, like, whoa, I can do all that to transform into another side of me for basketball. If we go all the way back to our original question, the first one you asked was, you know, what are you motivated by right now? I gave you a professional answer and a personal answer. And while we spend a lot of time in our professional life, we aren't our job. We're playing a role. We're playing a part. It might not be as far as acting, but it is performative. You're wearing a hoodie right now. I don't know what you're going to wear to work. Maybe you wear a hoodie. Uh, you're wearing glasses. You could wear contacts. Like there's, there's these options that we have. You have a beard. Like we do wear an outfit and we do dress up to try to get something across to somebody. And whether it's a suit or a hoodie, you're still making a statement. And then when you're in the office, you are in a role and you need to be cognizant of that role and the impact that role has on the people around us. So back to your son or or anybody in our city who's trying to understand who they are and what their team needs, like what? What Kobe Bryant needed when he was playing with Shaquille O'Neal is very different than what Kobe Bryant needed when he was playing with Pal Gasol. And Kobe would even admit early in his life, he made mistakes as a leader because he only had one way that he knew how to lead, which was a dog. Like, I'm going to, it was fear, it was intimidation, and it didn't work with someone like Shaq, who is more jovial and fun and wanted to have you know, enjoyment in his life and that's why they had to get a divorce. And so I think Kobe when he had Pau Gasol and a couple other players, he he changed. He evolved. And that's why he was able to win another championship down the road. And so we need to understand who we're surrounded by and what our needs are. And for me, like I played in a game last night and it was the first time I'd ever played in this basketball game a Wednesday night, you know, everyone's old and out of shape and not very good. But in the beginning, I just wanted to be likable. Like I wanted to be fun. I wanted to pass. I wanted, I wanted them to invite me back. And as we started losing, I was like, F this man, I'm going to start talking and I'm going to start trying to get our best player the ball. And so for me, arrogance wasn't even me shooting. It was me trying to get the best player the ball and put him in a position to score. That was arrogance for me. So when I say arrogance, I don't mean that you need the ball in your hands. You need to score. I do mean, you need to have a clear understanding of who you are, your identity, and how you can make people better around you and how you can take risks and in the beginning, I wasn't I was humble. I was like, all right, I'm just gonna play through everyone and you know do this I'm like, no f that I'm gonna make my stamp now we happen to have a ball hog on our team who kept shooting the damn ball and had arrogance and hadn't earned it, and it was a disaster, and we lost as a result. but for me, there was a shift that I even had last night, so for your son or or for a pro athlete like understanding who I am, it happens from humility. It happens from the preparation. Then when I have a clear understanding of who I am, let's exaggerate that on game day or when we're performing because we don't know what we're capable of. And all of a sudden, we could have a performance that we've never experienced before in our life that could make us realize that we're actually better than what we even thought or what anyone thought. And if you study the great, great performers, that's what they do. They earn it through humble preparation. They work their asses off and then they let go. And when they're performing, they just say, all right, I believe in myself. If I miss three, I'm going to make the fourth, and I'm going to stay with that. I'm going to keep going. And it doesn't always end in success, but the mind that's needed for success is often there if you study those great performers.
0: As you said there, and you mentioned it earlier, you can replace that arrogance if you want with unwavering self-belief which is, is something you pointed out in, in what I said to him in that car ride was when you're on the court in whatever the role is, your goal is to realize I am the right person in this role at this time. I'm the best person for it.
1: Yeah. Think of Dennis Rodman, right? Ultimate role player. He would 20 rebounds in a game without scoring. And he knew like he was a star in that role and he knew how he could impact the game in a positive way play great defense rebound the ball set screens that's arrogance and it doesn't even involve shooting a basketball and like for him to have that belief in himself it helped his team's win and i think like that is a perfect example it's an understanding of who i am a and then b like not limiting what i'm capable of in that capacity it it's not Dennis Rodman coming down and shooting three point shots. It's not Dennis Rodman, you know, wanting to play point guard and bring the ball up the floor. It, that that's stupid. And you don't want to perform in a stupid way, but arrogance is just a a focus on how I'm important, how I can
0: impact people. Uh, and there's all kinds of different ways to be able to do that. So we'll shift, pun intended, over to to the next mindset. And you've hit on a bunch of it already with how you've said how hard these people work at what they're doing. And so I'll read a quote there, and then I'll add a second part to the question, tying into, I think, part of what you talked about with Kobe. So the first quote is, all the superb performers you investigated had practiced intensively, had studied with devoted teachers, and had been supported enthusiastically by their families throughout their developing years consistently and overwhelmingly, the evidence showed that experts are always made, not born. So that was a quote from someone's study, I believe. And the second part was, and this is on the work and play continuum. When you think of that Kobe example, when do we take the work side too far and what are the negative consequences of it?
1: So the first part came from Benjamin Bloom, who I, he studied uh, what contributed to talent development in children? And the way he went about doing that was examining 120 elite performers. They'd won international competitions or awards and fields. You know, it was like music or mathematics or neurology. Uh, and he wrote a book, uh, called developing talent in young people. So that's where that came from. The idea that consistently and overwhelmingly the evidence showed that experts are always made, not born. I have a bone to pick with anyone who says always. I don't love the word always. But Bloom's point is that nobody comes out of the womb great. Like we all have to put the work in. And I think there is truth to that. And uh having two kids myself, you can see it. Like they're born with gifts and it's up to them and it's up to their parents to help them nurture their nature. And so I really believe like all of us have some gifts inside of us that whether that comes from birth or from when we're one years old or two years old. My, as a parent, my job's how can I nurture my kid's nature? And so I really, really do believe that. And the best way we can nurture nature is through work, right? It's through this idea of earning and challenging ourselves and growing. And you won't find an elite performer who hasn't put the work in. And so we need it. It's essential. And I almost think of it like it's a job. Like You have a job. We all have jobs. You need to work at it. You need to treat it like a job. And then as we've talked about quite a bit on, on this podcast, knowing when we need rest. And I think it was, uh, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus, their book, Peak Performance, where they talked about stress plus rest equals growth. And so that formula has really stuck with me. And so work can also be rest. I don't think like that is going against the paradigm. Like if you think about. Work. I was with a client yesterday who's in a sprint. You know, it's a tech company and they are launching and they're in full sprint mode. And we're like, okay, in the next six months you're in sprint mode, and then you're probably gonna need some rest. And you're gonna need a two week vacation. And that rest is where creativity can come. That rest are, is where a vision can come or brilliant ideas. And so that can be work as well, like that. That is needed. I think about my sleep. Like it takes work for me to fall asleep. Like I, I need to create some conditions to do that. So that, but when I think about work, it, it does involve like an intentional desire to do something that is going to help me improve or grow. And and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes it's challenging. There's plenty of athlete stories that we could give you that put in the work. Your question about like when do we take it too far? I think Kobe is a good example. Like You can hurt yourself. You can burn other people out around you if you're just a tyrant and you're just working. If you can't shift out of that work and get into that play, you, burnout's going to happen probably for you, and it's probably going to happen for the people around you. So we need to find time to also let go and play and enjoy ourselves. And I talk about a wrestler in the book, David Terrell. And I don't know if you've ever been around wrestlers. And when I talk about wrestling, I'm talking about not not like WWE. I'm talking about like a lot of times it's collegiate wrestling, is Olympic wrestling, that sort of stuff. And David was a hard worker, but when he really unlocked his potential, it was when he stepped into gratitude and joy and having fun and letting go. And so once again, we need both. We need to put in the work. If you're just going to try to have fun all the time, I don't think you're going to maximize your potential, which by the way, is what the book is about. The book is about How can you maximize your potential? And by the way, I don't think life is about maximizing potential, but I do think, you know, we all have a craft that we're probably working on and we want to be as good as we can at that craft. And so I think of David Terrell quite a bit because he was able to tap into his play mind in Madison Square Garden on his, in his sports biggest stage. And it led to all kinds of amazing dividends for him. And just a few weeks earlier, he struggled because I think he was in that work mind and not in that play mind. And so if we have some intention there, it can really lead to some amazing results.
0: And so, if you're if you're balanced there, like if we look at, you know, you raised a good point with Kobe Shaq. If and I think Kobe did find this later in life because you'd see him more on the bench with a smile and a laugh and a happiness. And in the early years, there was just like the death stare. And had he developed that earlier and stayed together with Shaq, there's potential for another two, three, four championships for the two of them. Sure, they both went in one, one, but
1: and you can be intense, right? So I think of Kevin Garnett. I'm a basketball guy, so I'll use some basketball analogies, but I'll use like Kevin Garnett, who was very intense, would talk to himself, would talk to... I once asked an NBA player, like, what is Kevin actually saying to himself? They're like, I have no idea. He just mumbles stuff the entire game. Kevin played with an intensity, but I'd also ask those NBA players, what was he like as a teammate? And they were like, he had your back unconditionally. And he would put his arm around you and you knew he had your back and, you know, he had an intensity to him. But when you play basketball, you play hockey, You know, you play soccer, you play football, like you gotta play. And, you know, he had a smoothness to him and a a fluidness to him. And, you know, you'd watch him. He'd love the game. He was passionate about the game, Uh, all aspects of it. I loved watching him. And he had a great quote where they asked him, like, what would he, what does he want to achieve in his career? He said, if by the end of the career, I'm known as the greatest teammate ever, that would be pretty cool. And I think about that. Like, how often do we think about, being a great teammate. And for him to say that as one of the best power forwards to ever play the game, seven foot one, long, skilled, I mean, just a supremely talented player who worked his ass off as well. For him to focus on being a great teammate, I always thought that was pretty cool.
0: The And for a lot of these players, one of the things that you talk about and that you see, because everyone knows about Kobe's workouts and how he'd start an hour and a half earlier than people so he could get one extra workout a day equals seven extra workouts a week and 400 by the time he's done a year. And one of the things that you talk about on the next mindset is, well, you've got your perfectionists who are trying to get like every ounce of when they can. And I always think of team Garmin when they had that 1% rule of let's make every little thing 1% better, and it'll all add up the, it, and we're contrasting that with being adaptable, which seems so far apart to me, and your friend Allen Stein Jr. had a quote that you had in the book, which was great. So I'd love to share that quote, and then get you to dive into this mindset shift are the habits you have today on par with the dreams you have for tomorrow. Having a dream is easy. Building perfectionist habits that move you toward that dream is hard, but letting go of that perfection when you need to in performance can be really hard.
1: Yeah. And if I think about my clients, this is one that really trips them up. The amount of pro athletes I've worked with that would say I'm a perfectionist, almost all of them. And I think in order to get to the highest levels, you need to have a demand of the highest standard. And that is what perfectionism is. It's, I have a demand that's the highest standard. And of course, there are pro athletes who are just blessed with amazing physique or skill or whatever it might be and athleticism and and can skate by. But most of them have this demand for the highest standard of excellence. You know, and you think about a shooter in basketball, like they get so many reps and they're just trying to get, keep that elbow in, snap their wrist, and they're doing that over and over again. Ah, uh, think about a sport like swimming, and they're trying to perfect that stroke. Katie Ledecky comes to mind, like every single time. You think of a sport like tennis. We just had two of the greatest tennis players of all time retire, and Serena and Roger Federer. Like they have to perfect that stroke every single time, and they can't bring that perfectionism to the tennis court, to the swimming pool, or to the basketball court, because if they do they're not gonna adjust if the basketball, the team's double teaming them. Maybe they just need to pass and they need to be agile. You know, in swimming, swimming's a little different uh as far as adaptability because the conditions are usually the same. But maybe they're in China, or maybe the pool is just a little bit different than what they're used to, or like Michael Phelps would always say, or maybe my goggles would fall off when I'm swimming. So he would actually prepare for his goggles to fall off and perfect that. So that he could adjust when he was in the pool, or if we're talking about tennis, like Serena was even talking about at the U.S. Open, like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, of course, I'm Serena, like I'm gonna play well and I'm gonna adjust, and maybe the crowd is behind her completely, and she needs to deal with the environment that's different than what it normally is, uh, or maybe you twist an ankle, and I love watching, like back in the day, Isaiah Thomas when he played on Detroit Pistons was playing in the playoffs and. Had like a twenty five point fourth quarter on one leg, or a guy interviewed Torrey Smith on my podcast who played in the NFL for I think ten years, and he played in a game the night before his brother was killed, and he had one of the best games of his career. And so that adaptability, agility, if we haven't learned it during the pandemic, I don't know when we will. If you try to perfect the pandemic, good luck. Because the reality is, you know, some days you're having to wear a mask. Other days you're having to make a decision on the vaccination. Other days you're trying to figure out if I can go into work or if I'm not. Like we've had to try to be adaptable and we have to be ready for different conditions in this life, in this world, in a performance that it's never going to be the exact same. And we want to perfect everything so that we can adjust to whatever might come our way. And for me, the pandemic, the people tried to perfect it. They were really struggling, like, and they continue to struggle. The people that are agile and adaptable and are trying to take things as they come and make the decisions that they feel are best for them—they're the ones that are thriving. And so, it's been a bit of a performance going through this pandemic. We've had to just execute and find a way, and we weren't prepared. None of us were. Uh, our governments weren't prepared, and we're reaping the consequences for that too. There, there may not have been enough perfection in, in the preparation for a pandemic. So those are things I think about quite a bit.
0: And when you think about the perfection as an athlete, it borders almost on for a lot of, the, for a lot of them and even for leaders. It starts to border almost on obsession. What happens as an athlete and as a leader when you're, you take perfectionism too far, even into the game?
1: Yeah, I think of perfectionism as being very narrow. I'm going to execute this thing. I'm going to try to master this. I'm going to zoom in and have this demand, this demand and this standard. So Alan, you mentioned, like he was a strength coach. So he's trying to perfect with someone's body and get them to exactly where they need to be. And a lot of times leaders need to be broad in their thinking. They can't be narrow. And you have to think about the vision, the consequences, how is this going to impact our team? If we have a board, how is the board going to respond to this? If we're a publicly traded company, there's more that goes into that. Like, There's all these different factors that go into decisions. It's very rarely just one thing that we need to perfect. If we're trying to perfect this one thing, we miss all these other elements. Also, perfection can lead to paralysis. All right, it's not good enough. We never actually shoot our shot. We never actually execute. And so think of an email. I was talking to a client about this recently. If you're trying to perfect that email and it's sitting in your inbox for five days, And there's a deadline and it's time consuming. Like I got an email that came in this morning that basically said, hey, I know it's short notice, but I need something by tomorrow morning. If I try to perfect my response to that, it's probably not going to be effective. So I need to be adaptable. I need to figure out, all right, what ways can I respond to this email in an effective way and be able to adjust and deal with the condition that's right in front of me. So I think sometimes if we stay in that perfectionistic mindset, we narrow our lens, we narrow our focus. And we can't see a broader picture and we never actually go for it. We never actually execute. And that's a lot of times worse than actually doing it and making the mistake. Which is,
0: is what we all... And it's a great point because we often hear that with entrepreneurs or businesses where you say, hey, perfectionism is failure to launch. At the end of the day, we've got to launch and then we'll fix it. Which brings you up to the adaptability because you have to be able to launch, get the feedback and then fix it. And so for our, our listeners who've never heard of it, you even talk about, I believe it's the Air Force who has the, the VUCA method, which is adaptability on steroids. Do you want to share a bit about what that looks like, Brian, and how you or I could use that in our everyday life?
1: Yeah. And actually who I, who I really study is the blue angels who fly you know, they fly feet away from each other and they do an amazing job of perfecting in preparation. And they go through everything nonstop, preparation, watch film, break it down. But then when they're in the air, they have to be able to adjust things. Conditions can change and they have to be in that moment. And this leads to like present. They need to be present in that moment. Uh, But VUCA is this idea, it's volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And this notion that our environments are open and that they're changing and they're evolving. And we love to think that we control so much of our life, but the reality is that there's all this uncertainty and ambiguity and complexity that we're going to have to deal with. And so I think the military, I've spent a lot of time with some of the best special ops people in the world, and they understand that. Like They have a plan. They often create a game plan, and then they come back And they review that plan after the mission. Right away, they come back and they do a postmortem. And so I think having a pre-mortem is really good, like what could go wrong? What are we dealing with? What are the conditions? And then when we're in it, we need to be adjustable, adaptable, find our way. And then we come back, we get back into that postmortem. Hey, what what went well? What could we improve? What do we learn about our situation? And what do we learn about ourselves? So those are frameworks that I use quite a bit with my clients when it comes to anything that they're dealing with. Uh, But yeah, VUCA is kind of a a cool term just because it speaks to the idea of what we're talking about earlier with the pandemic. Like, There's always going to be this uncertainty and complexity, and we have to be comfortable in that mess. And we have to be able to reflect in that mess after it happens.
0: And can you list those questions you ask yourself in your postmortem or that you suggest your clients ask? Because I, I thought that, I think there was four questions, and I had read a book and had a guest on last week. And they had three of those questions because there was a specific golfer who asks himself at the end of every round, three of those four questions.
1: Yeah. And I'll admit, I'm not like a big intellectual property guy. I think everything that I talk about here has been borrowed in some component to someone else previously. I kind of think like anything in the psychology space is being stolen at some point and just reinvented. So I'm not going to claim this as mine. I probably learned it from someone somewhere along the way. But I call it the Will method, W I.
0: That's right, the Will method.
1: Yeah, W I L L. And so the W stands for what went well. So that's our our W as well. I think it's always important to think about what are we good at? Like what's going great? Improve, like we all can improve. So that's the I. You know, where do we need to improve? And then there's two L's. And what I've learned along my journey is like it's important to learn about your environment or your situation or your team. And so the first L is, hey, what did we learn about our situation or our environment or our ecosystem or our opponents, whatever it might be? Uh, it's important to think about you know, something greater than ourselves in that reflection. And then it's important to come back to you know, What did I learn about myself? And I think that one is where a lot of people don't spend time thinking about, well, what did I learn about my team or my org or what did I learn about myself? Like a lot of times we'd say, what did you do well? What do you need to improve? Okay, cool. But learning is the whole point. And you go back to that preparation mind, that's where it's like, hey, what did I learn about myself? And what did I learn about my situation? And I find a lot of people don't actually take the time to think about what did I learn about myself? They really don't. I don't, I don't always think about, oh, how did I grow? And how did I learn about myself? But that's kind of, you're the constant. Like you're the constant in all the environments you're in. So it's important to think about what you did and what you learn about yourself and how that's going to impact how you're going to show up next time.
0: And so to to wrap this one up, I I thought you had this wonderful idea that seemed almost like a utopia is how do we become what you call an adaptable perfectionist?
1: Yeah. And like to me, idealistic to think, Hey, I'm going to be adaptable and I'm going to be able to play in these spaces and I'm still going to hold myself to a high standard of excellence. I think the reality for a lot of us is that. Perfection gets in the way of our ability to see the adaptability. But one of the things I strive for is is both, and I think you could do that pretty much with all the shifts. And how do we bring out both of these sides of ourselves for whatever environment we're in, and and embrace both sides of ourselves? And like once again, if we go back to what's a takeaway for the listeners today, the thing that's helped me the most is this understanding. That I actually do have arrogance in me, that I do have selfishness in me, that I do have analysis in me, that I do have perfectionism in me, that I do have fear in me, and I do have fearlessness in me. Like These are all pieces to the human puzzle that are a part of who we are. And rather than ignore them or sweep them under the rug or get frustrated by them, find out when you can use them at the right time. And that is really how I think about the entire book.
0: And so a couple last mindset shifts, we'll go through two in the, and then there's plenty more in the book uh, that people can buy and read, which I highly recommend. The, for the next one, you talked about this at, at, at the start, was this idea of head versus gut, and you called it analysis and instinct. And a line in it that jumped out at me was while analysis is a friend when you're preparing, it can be an enemy when you're performing. What did you mean by that, Brian?
1: Yeah, we go that paralysis by analysis. That's where it really can be an enemy. So I mentioned like zooming in and zooming out earlier as well. Like When you're doing it, I define analysis as just a detailed examination of whatever elements or structures of something typically for the desire to discuss or interpret. And so if I think about finance, for example, like we want to do a detailed examination, examination of, of what's going on. We want to know exactly where we stand. We need cash flow. We need to understand projections. All these things are just critical, critical to a company's well-being. And that, to me, is way more preparation. And then there does come a time where a leader needs to step into instinct, which is like this natural or innate impulse or inclination or tendency that we felt. And it's more of a feeling than a thinking. I think the head often is thinking and the gut or the instinct is feeling. And if you just turn off one of those, I think you're going to miss a big part of life and a big part of performance. And so, like I talk about another athlete who actually performs without their contacts, and it was a reminder for them to just, it was a wrestler, just wrestle blind, just wrestle off instinct. And the reason that we had him do that was because he was all analysis all the time. And I, I think that's the other thing I'd say if you're reading the book and there's one of these, you're like, yeah, I'm like that most of the time. The odds are you probably need to shift out of that. Like Overusing a strength is often what leads to a weakness. And yeah, I'll use basketball as an example once again, because I played it last night. Like I was guarding a guy who always went right and he's really strong with his right hand. But if he can't cross over to his left, even if it's for 10, like I was going to say 10 seconds, but even if it's for a second and then cross back to the right, he's going to be way less effective. So I'm not minimizing his right hand. It's great that he's developed that, but he has to go to the left, even though it's a weakness. And so that exists for all of us. We need to be able to tap into our weakness, even if it's just for a moment, uh, for either the preparation or the performance. So. Once again, I find that there are people that are very intuitive and perhaps they need to step into more analysis. I mean, you probably see that in, in your company. Like you all probably are great at analysis. There are probably people you, you interact with who are just intuitive, which is great, but they probably need to look at the analysis and look at the data. And it's your job to say like, no, look at the data. It's right there. It's logic. It's math. Like this is. This is there, so once again, we need both. Like we need to use our gut feelings, especially in a VUCA world, in an uncertain world. That's where sometimes we don't have all the data, like the vaccine or you know what your decisions are. like look, we it was new it It was novel. like to think our scientists are going to have all the answers it's that's not how our world exists. That's not how we work. And I actually want to defend our governments and our science our researchers, like they're doing the best they can with something that was new. And so the tricky part becomes communication and trust and and respect and all these other components that are relationships that lead to people's decision making as well. But yeah, I mean this idea that at some point we need to value statistical thinking and calculate risks. And when we're living in an uncertain world, which we are, we also need gut feelings. And we need to trust our gut and intuition sometimes. Because sometimes we can't see the whole picture through analysis. We just might be missing something. We might have a blind spot. We might have a bias. And so both are really valuable. And when you're executing and you're in the arena, so to speak, that's where I think you don't have time always to just be in the analysis. You have to go to instinct.
0: And that brings us to one of the big things in this mindset shift that we need to be able to access, and this isn't just sport, though it may hit there more, is this concept that you talk about, and a lot of people talk about being the zone, and and you highlight, uh, I love how you had formulas for a few things, and we talked about stress and the rest earlier, but you had Tim Galway's formula on performance equals potential minus interference, and so how does that all tie to getting in the zone, and how do we Walk that line between instinct and analysis to get ourselves in that zone, Brian.
1: Yeah, I would actually go to a different shift, which is the future and present one. And so,
0: okay, future present.
1: Yeah, like how do we get into the present or the zone? I think the zone is studied by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi he studied flow, and so you can substitute zone for flow and the flow state. And Csikszentmihalyi found that being in the flow state involved being in the present, often being challenged. And that time tends to slow down. So those are like components of the flow state. And I'll just start with like being present. So when we're performing, we do want to be where our feet are. We do want to exist in the now. And, you know, we will make a mistake and our ability to move on to the next one is just so critical to be back to the present. As a leader, your presence is huge. And the only way you can give someone your presence is if you're present. And so like that is a performance for you. Every time you meet with one of your people, like you need to give them your presence. And we also need to go back to that future state and we need to vision and see and strategize and think about something that might happen in the future. And so once again, you just sort of go back and forth between those two. Like if we're really good at seeing the future and visualizing it and creating a strategy and creating a vision and inspiring that vision then it's going to unlock our potential to be present because we've already done the work about seeing where we're trying to go. And that presence is critical for executing. And so that's how I I sort of think about that.
0: And so for you then, Brian, how big is mindfulness and meditation in your life? And I did pick up when I said, what are you motivated by right now? And uh, you qualified it. The end in the people you coach, whether it's executives, whether it's athletes.
1: I've gone through meditation practices throughout my life. I've done transcendental meditation. I've done just body meditation, breath work. Where I'm at right now with it is focusing more on mindfulness than meditation. And my distinction there is I think of meditation almost as the tool, the how to train yourself to be more present. It's a practice, a meditation practice or a yoga practice. And while that has been valuable for me at other points in my life i had like an awakening when i used to go to my basement i would exercise and i'd sit in like a a small kind of darkish room and um sometimes i'd play like some chill music other times i would just be with myself and i remember one morning my son came down and like wanted my attention and wanted to like hang out with me in the morning <laughs> i was like i'm meditating <laughs> and i don't know why but after that i reflected on it and i go you know, whole purpose of the meditation is so I can be present for the people that I care most about. (laughs) And I care a lot about my son. (laughs) And so I since have shifted away from like an active meditation practice and more to just directing my attention to being mindful. And so right now, I hope I've been mindful. Like I turned my phone off. I've got the computer on do not disturb. I am in a small room where no one's going to come in here and and bother us. And I just want to notice and observe what's going on. I like, you know, there's a quote in your background. You know, I try to just notice what's going on around me. And I find that to be a healthier way for me to live. And even if it's like when I'm outside, like look up at the sky, look at the trees, like take things in when I'm with people, notice them, observe them, see them. I find that to be helpful. I also try to focus on being grateful. I don't have a gratitude journal. I don't wake up every morning thinking about three things I'm grateful for, but I intentionally do try to lean in to gratitude. And then lastly, I'd say I'm not the most disciplined human in the planet. So I have clients that have a meditation practice that really works for them. And every morning they wake up, Like I'm not going to do ice plunges. I'm not going to go run a marathon. I'm not going to do an Ironman. Like, I've sort of accepted there are parts of me that I'm good at, and there's parts of me that might not be maximized. I think we live in a world right now where if you study gurus, so to speak, they'll say, you need to get at least eight hours of sleep a night. You need to drink a certain amount of water. You need to eat vegan. You need to abstain from alcohol. You need to journal every day. You need to read a book every day. You need to meditate. You need to exercise five days a week. Like I feel as though we've gotten into this phase of like maximizing for wellness. And for me, to be honest, like I do want to drink a bottle of wine sometimes. I do want to take off from exercising sometimes. I do want to play with my kid, you know, at 430 in the afternoon sometimes. Like I found that I'm highly productive. You started our conversation today by saying that people ask you, how do you have the time to do everything that you're doing? People ask me that as well. I'm plenty busy. I'm plenty engaged. And so for me, at least I don't find that I need to have those habitual practices as much other than exercise cuz I don't like to exercise. I loathe exercising. So for me I I know that that's important and that's something I do want even though I don't find it pleasurable. And so I try to have a forcing function for that. And I do have other forcing functions in my life. I write a newsletter every week so it forces me to write. I have a podcast which forces me to read books because like you I often have alters on. And so I do create habits, so to speak. But I know we were talking about meditation and I went off on a tangent. I found with meditation, like there are times where I can just take a breath and that can be my meditative practice. And I think sometimes we think that meditation has to be 20 minutes or 10 minutes and in silence and stillness. And God bless people that that's transformative for. I know there are times in my life where it certainly was. But where I'm at right now with it, it's not necessarily a practice and and I'm okay with that.
0: Yeah, it's a great answer. And I love the tangent because there's so much to chew on in there. Is I mean, you nailed it right at the beginning. When you look at meditation and you look at mindfulness, this is everything we've been talking about today. There's practice and there's performance and meditation is our practice. And and why are we practicing it? So that we can be mindful. And for our listeners, uh, if you're trying to Differentiate the two with mindfulness. I like to use the definition of paying attention to the present moment on purpose, uh, without judgment. Try not to judge yourself because we tend to do that too much. And so, it's a great point that you don't want the meditation to get in the way of being able to be present with your family. On the in to your point about the gurus, I mean, at the end of the day. If you actually slept eight hours a day and then tried to do everything that they tell you you're supposed to do, it's almost impossible. I mean, that would be the unhappiest existence I could ever, ever live because every minute of your day would be scripted. And then you'd be like, well, wait, wait, I actually have to go do my job. Like, How's this possible?
1: I had a woman on my podcast who's in the wellness health space and we're talking about this. And she said, you need to know who you are. So for me, I need sleep. Like, I do need sleep. I do not function well when I'm not getting my sleep. My wife needs exercise. And so she will wake up at 530 in the morning and she will exercise. And so for me, if I'm choosing between sleep and exercise, I probably am going to choose sleep. And, you know, I think in our society, we often think that person's lazy, but I think that's bullshit. Like, no, that's what I need to be well that day. And, you know, some nights I get to bed late and I need to sleep a little bit longer so I can function better. Some nights she gets to bed late and needs to still wake up at 5.30 and exercise to be at her best. And so the one thing I'll sort of close with on my end is I don't think this book is going to be like, oh, I need to just follow all nine of these shifts. I think that would be a mistake. Don't do that. What I would say is find three that are important for you. Then maybe if you could lean into those, they would help you grow in some capacity. That to me is success. And so I didn't write them by saying these are the nine shifts. These are nine shifts that when we broke down 35, these were the most powerful, strongest, best backed by research shifts that we thought would resonate with people and make the most sense and would be logical and we're not as redundant. And so I'm very quick to say, like these are don't follow these step by step. Pick the ones that resonate with you. Pick the ones that you think are important for your craft and lean into those. And I think we can do the same thing. Like I actually do drink a lot of water during the day. I actually do like to eat clean during the week. Like There are things that I'm doing in my life that I think make me better, and I try to lean into those. But I think we need to have some grace for ourselves if we're not doing all the things that are healthy for us. Because I find people that are trying to hack their way through life aren't actually feeling alive. And for me, as I said at the beginning, I want to feel alive. And sometimes that means actually being not disciplined. Like we're having a party tomorrow at our house for all our our kids are playing soccer. We're inviting their friends over, we're gonna get pizza, probably open up a couple of beers and some wine. Cool. Like that's fine. Like I that's what I want to do. Like I'm sitting here today telling you I'm probably gonna make some bad decisions eating and health wise. Like pizza and alcohol is not really on the wellness track, but I'm gonna feel alive in that moment. And I'm good with that. And There are other times where maybe I need to abstain from it, and I need to think about that yin and that yang. And so I'm still figuring this stuff out too, but um,
0: that's where I'm at right now with it. Well, that's the play side. You do the work, you got to have the play too. All work and no play is no fun at all. Brian, why don't we wrap it up there? Because we've had a pretty wide-ranging conversation, and that was a a great uh, ending. What didn't we cover that you want to make sure that that gets out there. Is there anything that you're like, hey, we can't leave this out?
1: No, I thought this was amazing. It's interesting. I'm a sucker for novelty. So, it, when the book was finished, I was like, it's done. It's closed. I can't edit it. I can't change it. And, you know, I still use it, but this <laughs> you were as thorough and prepared as anyone that I have been interviewed by and I've done quite a few of these because of the book. Uh, So thank you for that. And you even challenged me quite a bit to go back into my brain, which is not the most high-functioning brain. I always say to people, like, I have a good mind, but I don't think I have a great brain. My son's got a great brain. Man, he remembers way more than I do. We're, We're big like football fans. So he'll be like, do you remember last year when our team won this? I'm like, I have no recollection of that. So my recall is just atrocious. And so you challenged me.
0: I'm getting worse at that, Brian. I totally hear you. Like, I can't remember anything anymore.
1: (laughs) And I joke because there are all these people that are like memory teachers. And they're like, I can teach you to win a memory competition. And I'm like, yeah, but you're assuming that I'm going to remember what you taught me. Like, I'm not going to remember the memory tricks and tools that you're telling me. So this has been a challenging conversation for me and made me sort of go back into the the database, so to speak, and and still teach the stuff. Um, but I will say, like, I'm very proud of the book. Like, I'm excited that it resonated with you. Like, hearing you take a picture and sharing it with your people like lights me up. That's the whole idea of writing a book is that it gets shared with as many people as possible. And I think you know, for the first few months, you're on like a mission to try to get the book into as many hands as possible. Uh, and I've sort of lost some of that. So this was really re energizing for me two years out of just reminding myself that, yeah, this book is important and it's valuable to people. And that makes me feel fulfilled. And fulfillment was the one thing we didn't talk about in the beginning as far as like what motivates me. A lot of my life is trying to feel a sense of fulfillment. And I think that's a big, big piece for me. And I tend to go toward things that give me fulfillment I tend to run away from things that don't. And so this was a very fulfilling and meaningful conversation. And uh, so thank you for all your preparation. It really,
0: really means a lot to me. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. And where can our listeners find you?
1: So we have a company that's called Strong Skills. And the idea of Strong Skills is that in my line of work, you know, my background, once again, I got a master's in sports psychology, then I went back to school for executive coaching. So in our world, the stuff like communication and emotional intelligence and leadership and teamwork are often called soft skills. And our company is on a mission to change how people even use those skills and think about them. And we think they should be called strong skills because we think that those are the skills that actually make people strong. I think you probably feel that way too, given that you've got these hard skills that have gotten you in a position that you're in, but to unlock people and potential, it it requires strong skills. So our company is strongskills.co. That's the website. Uh, we didn't buy the m dot com. The m was like fifty grand for us to buy, and I just wasn't thinking that that was valuable enough to purchase. But we wanted the the domain Strong Skills, so it's StrongSkills.co. dot You can see my podcast there; it's called Intentional Performers. You can sign up for my newsletter there. Uh you can even see how you can find the book Shift Your Mind. And then I'm pretty active on social. Both Twitter and LinkedIn are the places I like to play the most. So Twitter, my handle is at Brian Levinson. And if you're interested in connecting on LinkedIn, I like to connect with people there as well. Uh, Brian Levinson on LinkedIn as well.
0: Perfect. We'll get all of that in the show notes. And yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Great book to read. And thank you for joining me. Thanks, Claire. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy.